We can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 2. Our summer series is focusing on texts taken out of context, and certainly Acts chapter 2 is one of them. Last time we looked a little bit at the outpouring of the Spirit. We continue to discuss that today in verses 22 through 36. So we're just going to look at verses 22 through 36 this morning. We'll look at verses 37 through 47 next week. Uh, Lord willing, we'll return to a book of the Bible or start a new book in September. Uh, But for a summer series with everyone away, we'll focus on text taken out of context. Uh, So we'll read verses uh, 22 through 36, begin reading at verse 22. Actually, I'm going to start verse 14 again. So verse 14 all the way to verse 39. But Peter, standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see uh, visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made uh, made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being uh, exalted to the right hand of uh, God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Amen. Well, let us pray. 
Our Christ, we are thankful that you are seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and we're thankful that you have poured out your spirit upon your people. And we're thankful, O God, that it is the last days that we have the spirit uh, been poured out on a dry land. And we're thankful that you still work by your spirit even now as the triune God engages in the salvation of sinners. And we praise you, O God, that you continue to call sinners out of darkness into marvelous light. We praise you, O God, that you continue to strengthen your saints by your spirit with the word. And so we ask, O God, as we come to the scriptures, we pray that we'd have a proper understanding of what you are saying, a proper understanding of the theological claims that are being made here, that we would see that this one Jesus is uh, both God and man, that our Lord Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ. And we know, O God, there are great mysteries that we see here, things that are difficult for us to grasp. But we're thankful, O God, for what the text says, that Jesus truly is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He was the one promised of old. He is the Son. And we're thankful, O God, that he is fully God and fully man. So we ask you give us illumination by your spirit. Again, help us to understand what is going on. Help us to ask the right questions as we come to your word, that we might be better interpreters of what your scripture says. So help us now by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, a lot of what we see here this morning will be a continuation of last week. Perhaps verses 22 through 36 isn't so notorious. But last week, I tried to deal with the place of tongues, the place of prophecy, the place of the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And I tried to highlight then that it signifies the last days have begun. It signifies the age of the Spirit has dawned. It signifies that Christ truly is at the right hand of God the Father, which is what Peter continues to do here for us in verses 22 through 36. He continues to explain what Pentecost means. He continues to explain what the outpouring of the Spirit means, and it really is in light of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tongues are not a gift in and of themselves, but they're for a specific purpose in a time and place, and they really signify and point to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that again, that's our series, things that are taken out of context. That's why hopefully we can read the context and see what is going on here for us. Hopefully it makes us better interpreters of God's word. Hopefully as you read your Bible, you're not, what does the Bible mean for me? Hopefully you're asking, what is God trying to say? Hopefully you're asking, what does God want us to see? Hopefully you're asking, what are the theological claims that God is making in his word? We wish to see God more than anything in his word and certainly we see in the book of acts really it's volume two of the gospel of luke as christ continues to do his work even at the right hand of god the father as he engages in the outpouring of the spirit for his people and it rests on the certainty of his resurrection and so acts chapter two really can be divided into three sections the outpouring verses one through thirteen the explanation, verses 14 through 36, and then lastly, the response. And so we did start with the explanation last week. So we're really on points two and three of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And what Peter wants us to see in verses 22 through 36 is what the outpouring signifies, namely that the Messiah has come and the Messiah has been raised. We need to ask ourselves the question then, who is the Messiah? Because the Jews didn't see it. They rejected Jesus of Nazareth, who then is the Messiah. And that's what Peter wants to explain to them, who the identity of the Messiah is. And so we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. 
in verses 22 through 28. Then secondly, we'll see the resurrection of the Christ in verses 29 through 36. So the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, verses 22 through 28. Then secondly, the resurrection of the Christ in verses 29 through 36. So let's first look at the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth in verses 22 through 28. So he's already explained the significance of the prophet Joel, the outpouring of the spirit promised in the prophet Joel. And he comes and says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. He's identifying the specific Jesus he wants to focus in on. He's identifying the one that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one to whom they crucified, which he's going to draw out here for us in just a moment. But notice, it was this one, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as do yourselves know. When Jesus was in his earthly ministry, especially those three years, we had the Spirit poured out upon him without measure, according to John 3, 34. That is, uh, in, in contrast with the Messiahs of old, Namely, the judges, namely David, mainly those ones in the past, they all had the Spirit poured out upon him. But this Jesus has been given the Spirit without measure. And when Jesus comes on the scene after his baptism uh, uh, by John, we see the uh, Spirit poured out. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Then he goes and engages in preaching and miracles. And remember, the miracles testify to that preaching. The miracles testify to who he is. Again, miracles are not something in and of themselves. They testify to the preached word. They testify to the truth. They testify to who Jesus is. And so Jesus had the Spirit poured out. We certainly, again, see that as messianic in Luke chapter 3. And so Jesus had that Spirit, and Jesus then engaged in his work of ministry by the Spirit, a man attested by God. God, remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man, in the one person, but he is fully man. And one of the ways in which Jesus performs his miracles is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Certainly it is the divine nature through the human nature, but also the Holy Spirit, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. And again, miracles, wonders, and signs signify the age is dawning. They signify the outpouring of the Spirit or the outpouring of the age of the Messiah is coming. And notice, they were attested. They were shown forth. They were something that the scribes and Pharisees saw. They were something that the Jewish people saw. They saw miracles. They saw wonders. And yet, they rejected him. They saw miracles. They saw people raised from the dead. They saw man, men with tiny hands being you know, healed. And they did not believe. We saw this in Mark chapter 3 when we looked at that way, way, way back, way, way, way back when. And remember in Mark chapter 3, they were looking to see what he would do on the Sabbath. They were trying, they were looking for a miracle to catch him doing on the Sabbath. A lot of people like to say, well, if only people saw miracles, if only people saw someone raised from the dead, if only people saw this, unless God changes one's heart, one will not believe. Unless the Holy Spirit works in the work of regeneration and effectual calling, one will not believe, even if uh, they should see someone rise from the dead. And certainly we see this in Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. He says they have the law and the prophets. If they do not receive the law and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from 
the dead. And so even with the signs and miracles and wonders that God had attested, these Jews still reject him. They still did not believe, even though the servant of Isaiah 42 was here, even though the son of David was here, even though the one promised of old and the Messiah had come, they still rejected him. In your midst, as you yourselves also know. Then notice they go on, he goes on to talk about the death of our Lord. Notice who brings this death about. This is where we see that great mystery. God's decree, God's plan, but also human responsibility. Even Reformed people believe in secondary causes. Even Reformed people believe in free will. Even Reformed people believe in a will. But what a will really is, is just the actualization of a nature. You're like, Mike, what are you talking about? That is, if one is born in sin, they are sinful. And the only thing that one can do willingly is sin, unless someone changes them. No one prior to the work of the Holy Spirit can choose between things that are spiritually good and spiritually evil. Adam was in the state of innocency. He could choose things spiritually good or spiritually evil. Adam brought sin into this world. When we're born into this world, we can only do things that are wicked. And God works through the wickedness of men. I know that's hard for us. God works through secondary causes to bring about his purposes, which is what we see here. Notice God's determined plan first. Him, Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Now remember, God does not look down the corridors of time. Foreknowledge just means the foreordaining, the intention. Remember, God's decree is one undivided act. We think in succession, there is no succession in God's decree. But God's plan of salvation for sinners was always in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was always plan A. It goes against classic dispensationalism that G, the rejection of Jesus was plan B. Not according to Acts chapter 2, not according to what Peter says, not according to his proclamation on the day of Pentecost. It is God's decree and plan. And some writers even connect what we see here to Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. We have to ask ourselves, when does that decree happen? Certainly we see it fulfilled uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Certainly it is uh, talking about David's greater son. But when does God say that to David's greater son? And so I will tell of the decree, him being delivered by the determined purpose. Peter also says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, when he says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believed in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So it's God's predetermined plan, God's eternal decree, but notice how God works. Cruz uses wicked men. You have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified and put to death. It was God's plan, but you did it. That's tough, isn't it, for our modern delicate sensitivities, that God used the wickedness of the Jews, the wickedness of the Gentiles, to bring about his purposes. That's hard for us. 
God does it with Nebuchadnezzar. God does it with Cyrus. Again, I've said before, Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar aren't going, yay, we're going to do God's will. But God, we're, yay, we're doing glorifying God and destroying people. That's not what they're thinking. But God uses them for his purposes. Or Genesis 50, what man means for evil, God means for good. And certainly what these men meant for evil, God certainly meant for good. But it shows how these wicked Israelites, even maybe they weren't the ones hammering the nails in there, but they conspired, they engaged in show trials, they are the ones that cried out, crucify him, crucify him, they are culpable in the murder of the Lord of glory. You have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified, you have put to death. How to lose friends and alienate people, Peter? Tell them exactly what they did. Tell them their sin. Tell them their problems. Nobody likes to hear our sins. Nobody likes to hear our problems. But that's why we need to preach the law. That's why we need to preach sin, that people might see the sweetness in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what we'll see uh, next week and foreshadowing a little bit this morning as well. In any case, this is what has happened. You killed him. But notice verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. God in his plan also includes the resurrection of Christ, not just his dying and being buried, but his resurrection and his ascension as well. And really, we see that redemptive historical movement and thrust, especially in Romans chapter 1. Declared to be uh, uh, descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. How does he prove and show who he is? How does he declare who he is? How does God show forth ultimately who he is? It's in his resurrection. It's in the fact, even as we saw, Jesus does say in that show trial in Mark 14, he says, you will see the son of man coming uh, with the clouds or sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That refers to his resurrection and his ascension. Jesus is at the right hand of God, the father and reigns even now, but he's saying, I'm getting ahead of myself whom God raised up. Notice having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And what's interesting too is Marshall highlights that this is just matter of fact. Don't need to prove it. Hey, he's resurrected from the dead. Here's what happens. Sometimes we have to explain. No, it, he, he's resurrected from the dead, and there are plenty of witnesses to that very thing. But notice the language in verse 24. Loose the pains of death. This is a Semitism. This comes from the Jewish uh, uh, Old Testament, especially, or the Jewish Bible. Uh, the Jewish people would have understood what this meant. And it refers to messianic woes that precede the messianic age. That means they're highly, he's highlighting something here. Notice, having loosed the pains of death, they refer to terrors and torments traditionally viewed as a prelude to the coming of the messianic age. What's he saying here? When is the messianic age then? When has it dawned? When has it come? It has come in Christ and his resurrection, his come in his ascension. The last days have begun in him. Again, even as Peter says in verse 17, as he's explaining what's going on at Pentecost, it shall come to pass in the last days. 
So he's taking the phrase last days and he's applying it to what's going on here. Last days just refers to that messianic age. Last days just refers to the age of new creation. That's why we speak of its inauguration. We speak of its dawning. We speak of its alreadiness. We long for the not yetedness of it. We long for the uh, consummation of it, but it has dawned in Christ. He is here. He has arrived and the Jews have rejected him. But thankfully, there's going to be mercy towards them, but it's not in some millennial kingdom. It's going to be through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which I'll hit uh, in just a little bit. But notice, so it is the pains of death, messianic uh, uh, kind of undertones that we see, overtones that we see there, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he goes on to quote Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. This is so very appropriate for Jews, isn't it? You should have been paying attention, should have been reading Psalm 16. Now, they probably did have Psalm 16 in their mind, but they're not seeing what's going on. So Peter's going to explain it for them in verses 29 and following. But he goes on to say in verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. Bach says, Peter uses the psalm because the kind of defense God gave to the psalmist is like that which Jesus received, a typological prophetic use. God's protection and the certainty of it are key to the citation's tone and use. God was with the first David, and God was with the last David. And the first David, as Peter's going to say, is really not talking about himself. He's talking about someone else who would come, someone else who would come at a later time, someone in whom uh, he, he would not allow your Holy One to see corruption. The only way that we can rise from the dead is because of the one to whom God said, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption corruption. So we quote Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11, even to the Lord Jesus he, he at the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. Or to put it in Isaiah 50 terms, he I've set my face like a flint. He goes with resolve. He goes to that cross knowing it is the plan of God. He knows what he must do, even if it is brought about by lawless hands who crucified and put him to death. But the Lord was with him but without measure, every step of the way. I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And so even at the end there, there's this triumph in life. We see this overcoming by resurrection that the Lord does for us, Acts 2. It's quoted in Acts 13 as well with Psalm 2. As Paul preaches to Galatia, we see it really much, very much refers to the resurrection of the Lord. He did have a body that did not decay. It rose from the dead. Now, I do think one thing that we can see in these verses, especially, is really he wants us to see who Jesus of Nazareth is. He is the one who was raised from the dead. He is the one who is proven to be God and man. He is the one who is proven to be the Messiah. And notice, God was with him, for he is God, but God was with him by the Spirit. But notice the comfort for us as well. Because of what Christ has done as the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, we will not need to fear death, brethren. 
again, I'm not looking for the way I'm going to die or looking forward to the way I'm going to die or what that's going to look like or how it's going to happen. I'm not looking forward to the pain that is involved in decay. Brethren, we don't need to fear the actual death part of it. And we're going to see that tonight because the end is better than the beginning. If you want to really be depressed, come tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But again, in a very comforting way in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But it highlights God will be near to us. God is with us in life. God will be with us in death. And we will be with God in the new heavens and new earth where there are, as he says, pleasures forevermore. You will make me full of joy in your presence. It's all because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We do not need to fear. He is Lord. He is our Lord. He has died for us, but he also has been raised, and we shall be raised with him as well. So Jesus of Nazareth is the one to whom was killed and the one whom God raised from the dead. So that's Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrection of him. Let's then look secondly at the resurrection of the Christ in verses 29 to 36. This is what Peter's driving to, uh, towards. He wants us to see, here's who Jesus of Nazareth is, here's what he did, but notice, here's the promise of the Christ. Verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, the, the one who stands in the stead of his people, like the patriarchs did in a lot of ways. David, in a lot of ways, is a, a federal head. Uh, especially in the Old Testament, really what Israel does is tied to, or how they do uh, with the Mosaic Covenant is tied to their king. The king did what was right in the sight of the Lord. They would typically do what was right in the sight of the Lord. If they did not, they would, if he did not, they would not as well. Not always a complete one for one, but typically that's what happened. But so he says, let me speak freely about David. So the psalm isn't just for David. The psalm is speaking of somebody else, that he is both dead and buried. He died, and his tomb is with us to this day. If you were to go to dig up David, he wouldn't look very regal, would he? He really did see corruption. His body really did decay. Now, thankfully, our bodies on the final day when Christ comes back shall be resurrected and shall be conformed to Christ's heavenly body. But that doesn't mean if you were to wear, uh, uh, the, that if you dug a loved one up, that they would look a little interesting. And so certainly David would have looked interesting, that he is dead and buried, and his tomb is still with us to this very day. He, he's really dead. He really did see corruption. But David is also a prophet, verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. This is the Davidic covenant. If I were to give you a pop quiz, you would all know where the Davidic covenant is, right? Because I've asked it a lot. Second Samuel 7, Psalm 89, and Psalm 132. And certainly all of those are in view here, especially with the fact that God said to David, I will give you a line. I will give you a dynasty. I've entered into this covenant with you, especially according to Psalm 89. And really throughout the rest of the books of uh, Samuel and Kings, we're looking for that king. We're looking for that ruler. We're looking for the one who would be perfect in every way. Notice what he's saying here. God had sworn this to David. He swore by his oath. It's not just for David, but the dynasty of David that comes from him. He would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Even 2 Samuel 7, in a roundabout way, is speaking about the resurrection. 
one whose kingdom would have no end, one whose dynasty would have no end. How does the Lord prove that he is the Messiah? By his resurrection from the dead. And he goes on to explain, not just 2 Samuel 7, but bringing together Psalm 16. He, verse 31, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. I know Hades and Sheol, those are very tough concepts to consider and ponder, but perhaps it points out that he was really dead. He really died, but he was not left there, nor did his flesh see corruption. It was not left there, but he was raised from the dead. That's the emphasis here. So this is what was promised concerning the Christ. This is what was promised concerning David's greater son. And then notice what he does. Verse 32, this Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God, was raised from the dead. Well, look at that. David promised that his Christ, his Messiah, would be raised from the dead. See, Peter puts it together for us, doesn't he? Jesus is the Christ. He's going to drive that point further when we get to verse 36, but that's kind of the genius of his sermon, the way in which he builds to that point and builds to the purpose, to highlight what the purpose of Pentecost really is. This Jesus, God has raised up, and notice, we are all witnesses of it today. Especially speaking, I'm speaking like Peter. He's thinking, we saw him raised from the dead, which is what we saw in Acts chapter 8. David didn't ascend. David wasn't raised. But David's greater son, Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, hopefully the men of Israel, two and two, is starting to, you know, add up to four. Before it was two plus two equals six. Now it's adding up to be four. Hopefully wheels are turning. We are witnesses of this very thing. Therefore, as he drives to the point, being exalted to the right hand of God. Again, we saw this in Acts or Mark 14, similar parallel, similar thing we see in Matthew 26. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. You will see him sitting in power and glory. You will see him come with the clouds of heaven, which I believe refers to the ascension into heaven. Therefore, he has been exalted and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit. Boy, Father, Son, and Spirit in operation here, right here, Trinitarian. It is all Trinitarian. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Jesus has come. Jesus, the Messiah, is here. And this is what the, the outpouring signifies. This is what the Jews were longing for, yet they rejected him. That's why any Jew today that denies that Jesus is the Christ is not part of the people of God. I know that's a bold statement, but in reality, those who are of the people of God, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, are those who are called out of darkness into marvelous light. And throughout the entire book of Acts, in a lot of ways, it's a rejection of ethnic Israel, the advancement of the church and Jews being brought into that church by faith. And if they did not see this very thing, then they would be rejected because he says, as he quotes Psalm 110, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. But in any case, Christ has triumphed 
Christ reigns. This is what Pentecost signifies. This is its purpose. This is what the, uh, the, 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 the gift of or the, uh, what tongues signify here for us. Not for us to have some special moment in my quiet time before God. They're meant to be a sign and were a sign that Christ reigns. It's always connected with him. I even think in the modern charismatic movement, sometimes people just want the spirit and just want the gifts without the Christ. Remember, we believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the way in which we see that triune God is by the work of the Spirit through the Son that we might see the Father. And if people just want gifts and the ex uh, extravagance and the extraordinary, I think they're sorely missing the point. Because the point, as Peter is saying, is that Christ reigns. And remember, uh, tongues and a prophecy, even in the book of Acts, is very rare, and it comes out in specific instances when the gospel is advancing to the ends of the earth in redemptive history. And what's interesting, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in Acts 2.37, who is it that cuts them to the heart? Well, the implication is the Holy Spirit, but how does he do it? Preaching. They needed Peter to explain what was going on. And it was preaching that the Spirit worked with to cut them to the heart. Not the razzle-dazzle, not the tongues, not the prophecy, not puppets, ponies, and programs, not the spiritual mall, but preaching. That's how God works. They were cut to the heart. What must we then do? And it's through the proclamation of who Jesus is. But there's still more. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 is the most quoted or alluded to Old Testament passage in the new. And certainly we see that sit at my right hand till I make your enemies subjugated under you. Even in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's talking about when the end comes, the reason Christ hasn't brought the end yet is he's still making his enemies his footstool. I don't know about you, but that's a very comforting thing. When you see a lot of bad people, when you see a lot of sadness, when you see a lot of sorrow, Christ is going to make his enemies his footstool. And he reigns at the right hand of the power even now. Even with all the bad things we see, doesn't change that very fact that he's been given power in both this age and the age to come. And notice the charge that he gives to them. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, still drives it home, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. See what he does there? Fulfilling Psalm 110, fulfilling Psalm 16 as the sermon flows to this very point of what is going on here, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it is evidenced by the resurrection, testified by the outpouring of the Spirit, that Jesus truly is the Christ and reigns supreme. That's the point. That's its purpose. And we'll see the response, Lord willing, next week, 
But one thing I want to highlight this morning and next week as well is whom Christ saves here. Verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter just said, whom you crucified, whom you delivered up, whom you handed over or killed with lawless, taken up by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, what you did. Those to whom actually killed the Lord of glory, when they were actually there standing before him, God gives forgiveness. That is what is miraculous here. Not the outpouring of the signs and wonders and the tongues, but the fact that the men who handed Jesus over, the fact that the men who said, crucify him, crucify him, God saves. That's the amazing grace that we see here. That Christ, who is at the right hand of God the Father, saves sinners, even sinners who put him to death. And so if you're an unbeliever here today, there is such great mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is mercy and forgiveness for all of your sins in him. If you believe upon him, if you call upon his name, as Joel 2.2 says, you shall be saved. Because that's what Christ did when he came, lived, died, and rose again. It was to save sinners in himself. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for Jesus of Nazareth, that he is the Christ. Thank you that he is the Lord. And we're thankful that he reigns supreme at your right hand even now. And thank you that he passed through death and did not see corruption and was raised from the dead. That though we die and though we see corruption, O oh God, we know that we shall be raised uh, on that day when Christ uh, comes back, when Christ calls uh, uh, his people out of that grave. And we long for that time. We long for the reunion of body and soul. We long for that fullness to come in, O oh God. And we're thankful that even in this overlapping of the ages, even as this present evil age still continues on, we know that there shall be an end to it. But we also know that Christ reigns in both this age and the age to come. May that give us comfort as we go through sorrow. May that give us comfort as we are uh, heavy laden and weighed down. May we find rest in the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he saves sinners, <laughs> even those who killed him, even those who crucified him. And we know, oh God, even though we were not there that day, it was our sin that held him there. We would have cried out, crucify him, crucify him with the crowds. And we're thankful that you are mercy, uh, merciful and gracious to forgive sinners. You are the God who is long-suffering. You're the God who is abounding in goodness and truth. You're the God who keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And thank you for this promise that we have in the Lord Jesus, that we are forgiven and that he reigns at your right hand and we shall be raised with him on that final day. So give us comfort, give us strength, we pray. Save sinners, we pray. Show them their sin, we pray. And show them their need for Christ. So be with us all now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.